Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Nazia Mahmood, who is an astrophysicist, aerospace engineer, aspiring citizen astronaut, martial artist, STEM ambassador, model, writer, and artist. That is quite a list. So without further ado, Nazia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Guy. It's wonderful to be speaking to everybody here today. Well, um, virtually, <laughs> in a recording format. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's good to keep the uh, listeners in mind. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I actually first came across you because one of my listeners suggested that I invite you onto the show and um, they sent me a link to a video of you doing sword work in the Scottish countryside. Now I can tell from your voice that you are Scottish. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Hard to miss that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was going to say, so you know, I ask everyone sort of where they are. So whereabouts in Scotland are you? Um, So um, I'm born and raised in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, Although the nature of my work does mean I need to travel around quite a lot, home base is Scotland. So um, yeah, based in good old Glasgow. And uh, I basically, long story short, I have quite a mixed background. So when people see me, they usually don't expect the Scottish accent to come out. (laughs) Right. but yeah, so like culturally, I'm born and raised in Scotland. My my mother's English. My my dad is from Southeast Asia with Arab background, and you know we have um, lineage from like all over in terms of Pakistan, India, Saudi Arabia, and so on too through the a lot of the Persian countries. So a, a very big a big mixed boat. <laughs> Excellent. And being in Glasgow, you are within striking distance of the Calvin Grove Museum. Yes, which has. Up. I have spent a lot of time in there. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. And it has my armour. They have a suit of armour in there. It's called called the Avant Armour. And, I mean, they've had it for years. They don't seem to realise that by rights it belongs to me. I mean... I see. And they're just sitting on it. It's like, it's totally unfair. I was about to ask, is it, when you said it's my armour, is it that you've lent it out to the museum or no, is, no, and it's yours no, or no, is it in no, case no, no, that like, no. somebody, somebody stole it and you said, no, it's just, it, it's yeah. just, it's just the moment I saw it, yeah. I was like, that's the armour. I mean, I don't, I'm not really that into armour generally. Yeah. Um, many of my colleagues are massive armoured combat fans and I'm more uh-huh. of an unarmoured sort of person. Yeah. Um, but when I saw it, and it has these enormous elbow cops, just like in Fiore's manuscript, yep. um, and I it's just like, that's my armor. That's me. In a why? Why yeah. is it stuck behind glass? Why aren't they giving it back to me? Because clearly, that yeah, that that armor yeah. is mine, really. Oh, they have <laughs> such a great collection. I mean, the last time I went along, maybe. I mean, a lot of it is probably just because of lockdown reasons and so on. The displays did look a lot more thinned out. I don't know if they've been um, having to put more into storage or something, but uh, which was a little bit upsetting. But I mean, they do have a really good collection. So. Yeah, it's amazing. And they actually, if you're nice to them, they'll let you into the vaults. There is a kind of, they have this massive storage facility. Uh-huh. And the last time I was up, it wasn't there. I've been mean, to Scotland many times since, but I was in Scotland for a sword fighting event and in Edinburgh, and we went. We were taken by the organisers to this place in Glasgow, where, um, you know, they. It's not. It's not a museum. It is a storage facility mm-hmm. for 
arms and arms, and they got like all these swords and things out for us to pick up and play with. It's amazing. (laughs) There is quite a strong scene here because as an Mm -hmm. um, alumnus of the University of Glasgow, um, I was the president and uh, kind of founder of one of my own societies there, but we were very closely linked with a lot of the other kind of... um, what we would call the geek society. So whether it's sure. to do with gaming, anime, manga and so on, but that also included links with like um, the Chivalric Dream Society or LARP and uh, also like Kendo and so on as well. So it mm-hmm. spread across quite a lot of different um, different interests. Mm-hmm. And I do recall they would sometimes have uh, events within the, the, um, the kind of main hall area of the university. And it would just bring together, you know, people from different types of European sword arts. So, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the time they did have displays coming across from the Kelvin Grove Museum. There were some actually displayed in the the museum that's in the University of Glasgow. The oh, what was it called again? Um, it's on the tip of my tongue, and I'm almost going to forget. Uh, I don't remember a, either. There's, there's, there's a small there's museum. The in the, museum. Yeah, they've got that. a small one inside of it, which where they yeah. also display a, a few of their their pieces as well. So it's quite good. Yeah, things have moved on. I was at Edinburgh University in the early 90s and started a historical fencing club there uh, in 1992, I think it was, maybe 93. And there was nothing like that. It was, it was we were this these sort of lone weirdos who, who had, <laughs> had no friends. It was, it was terrible. I mean, I'll be honest, my, um, well, no, it wasn't my first introduction because my first introduction to historical European martial arts or to um, any type of kind of LARP society even or role play societies who liked that as their interest uh, was a little bit earlier. However, there were some very uh, eccentric individuals within certain societies there who would (laughs) very strongly put people off joining, to be honest, um, which Uh, was such a shame. It's such a shame because being somebody who's always had a love for swords in general, although my speciality is more so in the Eastern sword arts. Um, it was just a sh- it's a shame to see this, especially when it's those who were the ones pushing for getting more membership. And right. you know, it was there was there's always been that conflict, I guess, within universities to get more people in, and then there's the whole I don't know ego trip <laughs> that would happen. And again, this is across any any club that you know you would have. So. Um, Unfortunately, one of my introductions wasn't the greatest, but then when I did go in and look into it myself, I began to find it so much more fascinating. Like, don't take your interest just from those around you. <laughs> yeah, and, and also don't don't let anyone put you off. Exactly, definitely. Because because so, not everyone is not everyone in the you know in the club or in the in the area of interest is going yeah. to be behaving like that one particular person. Def- definitely, um, hence the reason I thought you know go along and like do my own research or look into it myself mm-hmm. or look into other clubs and societies out with um, that one institution uh, where I could learn more about it. And I ended up joining a fencing class actually afterwards. Oh, really? so, yeah. Which so one? it was classical fencing. This was uh, as part of, this was actually part of the University of Glasgow. That was one of my first fencing classes. So okay. I, I spent a bit of time on obviously the foil, Epi Saber and so mm-hmm. on as well. But um, I did then end up moving across more so back to the Eastern arts sure. or eastern arts more so because my heart's just always been there but anyway i'm not trying to jump topics here <laughs> no 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 that's fine that's fine I, I'm, I'm happy to be around so obviously we're talking about swords so uh, i know you've been training in Gundo for uh-huh. about 13 years now um so what drew you to swords and how how did you get started what what was that process like um 
I hope this doesn't bore everybody or it sounds too corny or cliche, but I am. If I'm sounding so corny, I am already quite a cob, so I'll, I'm happy to do that. Um, <laughs> so I have been in the martial arts, or my training began ever since I was really tiny. And the largest influence to that was my dad, because my dad was ex-military. <clears throat> and he always hoped that, wanted for my sister, my brother and I to at least have some basic knowledge of self-defense, especially for my sister and myself. Mm -hmm. um, so when we were when we were very young children, he'd put us into different classes. One of my first um, empty hand, well, they do have weapons arts in there, but in general, empty hand art that I practiced and is probably one of the closest to my heart was ninjutsu. Okay. And um, yeah, that was like one of my earlier memories and that really helped propel me. But when I think back, I actually realized one of the reasons I really stuck with the martial arts is because of probably what I believe to be my my earliest memory. I must have only been about two or three. You know how sometimes, even if you were only two or three years old, you remember like a scene, like a flashback, yeah, and that's it. Absolutely. You might not you might not remember every detail, but you remember how it made you feel. Yeah. And I remember being this being tiny and walking in well in the middle of the night which would have been 8 p.m obviously because I'm, I'm a kid walking into the room after waking up because I'd heard some noise and in the middle of the room I can see my mom with two police officers and it turns out that she had been attacked when she was outside and she was basically going out to grab some really quick groceries for us um all I knew as a kid was somebody hurt mum. And I could I still remember seeing like blood down the side of her head. Oh god. And I just remember there was we had this little block TV and it had a little crown ornament on top of it that you would keep perfume in. And I remember staring at it so intensely and I still remember the feeling of my little fists coming into you know, little um mm. you know, really tensely being clenched. Mm. And I would just very um intensely remember myself thinking I'm going to grow up and become strong enough to protect mum so no one can hurt her again oh. and although that obviously faded away and I didn't really yeah, think about sure. it again maybe somewhere deep down it stayed with me because after that I grew up kind of always wanting to go towards doing things that helped me physically also become a lot stronger um and yeah, I guess that just stayed with me. So it wasn't until more recently when I thought back and I was talking to my sister when we remembered those those uh, points in our lives that I thought, yeah, I think that's probably where it all kicked off. So although, sorry, I do apologize for the really sad no, story. No, but no, you know, like, but it, it was like a starting point for me. And um, sure. having dad as somebody who was very much into, you know, um, kind of uh, military strategy and somebody who wanted us as children to grow up to be able to defend ourselves and protect ourselves mm -hmm. and our loved ones that really pushed it as well so my brother sister and I all three of us entered the martial arts but it remained my passion and I continued it yeah you're I haven't thought about this for a long time but you just reminded me of an experience I must have been about 10 years old and I was going to the supermarket with my mum mm -hmm. we were living in Botswana at the time so this was in Gaborone and we came out and there were these three or four guys sort of hanging around outside the supermarket. And one of them sort of came up to my mum and asked her something, probably something like, you know, got any money or whatever. Yeah. And then snatched her bag and he must have had a knife in his hand because he cut the strap and he ran. Oh. Okay. Uh -huh. And I started running after him. 
because automatic, right? It's a, yeah, it's like that's a reaction. my mum's bag, right? Yeah. And my mum called me back, and then thinking about it, you know, that could have gone disastrously wrong because he's a grown up and I'm a kid, and he's probably yeah. got a knife. And what am I doing? Yeah. It was a. It's that then, instinct, I, that yeah. Off. But I just felt awful for months afterwards because I had failed to protect my mother from the attacker. Yeah, that it was just terrible. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And I, I completely wow. empathize where I, I understand that feeling where even as a small child, you feel like you had some responsibility in protecting right. a loved one, regardless of the fact that they're much older and they're adults and you're just a child. You know, it's still, I think that's something that's embedded in us, um, that protective instinct. And I guess this is where a lot of our motivations can stem from going forward, whether it's to do with our careers, whether it's to do with our passions and hobbies, you know, a lot of it can come from that. Um, so I, I understand, like, obviously later on, you must have thought, you know, I was just a well, child, what could I do? But yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's kind of as, good as, I didn't as, get caught. <laughs> yeah, like, as, as, a, as an experienced martial artist now, the correct thing for that child to have done was to stay with his mum and, yeah. and then leave the parking lot immediately. Yeah, I mean, I would say even as an adult, as an experienced martial artist, um, having been in, unfortunately, a lot of situations where I have been attacked, always by men. Um, I have been in several situations, unfortunately, and, you know, thank thank goodness, uh, being able to use, first and foremost, my brains before I use my body to protect myself. Um, But even as an adult, the best thing to always do is just get the hell out of there. Your life means more than trying to... To fight back and that's one of the things yeah. I would always say to my students when I was teaching you know just get the hell out of there you don't know how many friends they've got around the corner it's not about finishing the job it's not about trying to um, appease your ego or anything like this just save yourself and your loved ones use your brain first and only physically defend if you've got no other choice yeah, I've, I've never had a great interest in self-defense as a practice because from a martial arts perspective it's really yeah. boring it's mostly yeah. seeing the situation before it arises and not going into it and yeah. de-escalation and a couple, knowing a couple of things really, really well that you will apply full force yeah. immediately when the stimulus occurs. And it's, it's not nearly so interesting Definitely. as two I, experienced people who have chosen to come together to fight. Of course. In a, and yeah. Do you know, this is where I think a lot of the misconception, especially among, uh, so among the general public, tends to happen mm-hmm. where it's they believe that the two are one and the same. Being a right. martial artist means that you have a street, streetwise experience of something, you know, of defending mm-hmm. yourself in a live situation. And this is where I believe there needs to be more, um, more differentiation when we speak sure. to people because if somebody is going to join, you know, this could be a Gong Fu class, it could be Tai Chi, it could be historical European martial arts, it could be Kendo, whatever. Um, for them to understand that there is a difference between martial art, martial combat and martial sports, you know, there yeah. are differences between all of them. It's um, quite important. It's, it's the intention anyone, and application. Yeah. And anyone who takes up, you know, 15th century swordsmanship as a way of learning self-defense yeah. is clearly deluded. it's totally unrelated to the modern situation yeah so for example um i have these conversations quite often with people where where they'll say yes uh you might be experienced with a sword but if somebody else has got a gun what are you going to do you know and the what Mm. i'm the message i'm trying to get across is i don't practice that for the sake of 
a, a live right. situation, you know, where I'm going to, I'm not going to be as well, as much as I'm kind of known for it, for when I'm traveling back and forth with training, I'm not going to be walking around on the streets with, you know, my, my sword strapped to me. Um, no, other than my, you other get arrested that way. Exactly. <laughs> we are law-abiding citizens, believe it or not. Um, so, yeah, but what I do tend to find is in some arts, you do find conversation take place about how, for example, say, for example, with Haidongamdo. Um, the art itself uh, is a modern, is a more modern uh, sword art based on older military techniques. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, they're based on the manual called the Moirobi Tonji, which was uh, with its predecessors, which were coming from about the 1600s or so. Um, this is these were based on military techniques, and these came to be because there was need for um, national defence due to invading forces. Um, as we know with Korean history, there's been a lot of conflict take place. And um, so these were these military techniques were then uh, developed into combat systems. And then what we find now is that it's been turned into martial arts systems or sword systems that are similar. So it's based on them, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to run out into the street, you know. Um, but what you do tend to find is uh, with with an art like Haidongumdo, the it's not it's not made for just one-on-one combat. It is a style that is based on defense against several opponents at what once. Ah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. So, for example, again, being based on military techniques, um, if you were in a battle situation, if you're on the battlefield, you know, you cannot guarantee you're only going to be facing off against one person. You're going to have people coming from all different directions. And that was one of the kind of core elements of that uh, of that teaching, which is to defend yourself, again, based on military technique. But what we see nowadays is, yes, there are elements of that still in there. And another another important kind of factor is the use of those similar motions empty hand. You should be able mm-hmm. to use the similar motions empty hand. So there's a, that other aspect. Um, but again, that doesn't mean it's going to protect you against a gun sh- uh, gunshot, you know. No. So, or, or, or a bunch of guys with knives you know, on the metric. Exactly. Um, so I, I think it depends on this is where the actual teaching of the art, not just the physical teaching of the art, but the, the teaching of the art as a whole by by the instructor is quite important for them to differentiate to the students what right. the intention is behind these arts. Um, so I personally, I mean, I, I've been I've had the um, the kind of honor of being able to train in several different arts, uh, training in different techniques. A lot of these are, you know, Chinese, a lot, majority of them are Eastern European. Sorry, not Eastern European, uh, Far Eastern. I was about to say, not European. I'm slurring my words here. Um, But uh, so whether it's Chinese arts like uh, Shingi, Baguazhang, Tai Chi, um, and going on to Japanese arts like uh, Karate, Iaido, Kenjutsu, Korean arts as well, and so on, you see so many of the similarities but again it's about how it's taught to you which is you're not just taught the physical aspect you're taught okay this is where it comes from this is why it was done and for me the practice is very much spiritual I know that might sound odd to a lot of people but there's that there's a spiritual aspect to it that helps instill discipline it helps instill um almost a sense of uh this self-expression is the way I would kind of put it. it to me, it, it is exactly what the term is. It's an art form. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, you have sword arts where you do a lot of these flourishes, you do a lot of these spins and so on. You would not do that on a battlefield. You would get killed if you were to stand yeah. there spinning your swords, you know, so it's not made for that. But um, depending on what style you are learning, there will be aspects of military techniques in there. So again, just depends. And I'm, yeah, and I'm just blabbing on now. <laughs> sorry, so, no, you know, what you train and how you train it are, are two fundamentally different things. And yeah. and you can train, some people will train a particular art for, you know, to get fitter. Some will train it because they yeah. think about, they're thinking about self-defense. Some will train the same thing because they're thinking about you know, spiritual practices or whatever. And it's, yeah. you know, one art can, can fulfill many of these functions. It just changes how it's taught and how it's practiced. There's a really, really good book about this called Meditations on Violence by a chap called Rory Miller, who's actually been on oh. my show before. It's absolutely superb. And it kind of goes into detail as to what, um, basically what the goals of various different martial arts are yeah. and how you can tell what the actual goal is and therefore how you can figure out what a particular martial art is good for. Yes. Right? Okay. So like, you know, if you train... Um, he doesn't use this example. If you train a 17th century rapier yeah. and you want to win boxing matches, you're doing the wrong thing. Yes. <laughs> right? Um. <laughs> and, and, and there's a fundamental difference between an agreed combat, like a boxing match, um, or even a formal duel where you know when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen. It's literally fenced off from normal society yeah. and there are spectators. That is one thing. Being mugged outside the pub is something else altogether. Exactly. This is where I would say this crosses into the realm of martial combat. And this is where, for example, you know that age-old cliche where people have to come around speaking about, you know, oh, what's the best style for this, that or the other? <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I know everybody listening is just going to be like, yes, we've all heard this a thousand times over because we all have. And as soon as somebody hears that you're a martial artist, that's always one of the most common questions you get. And it's it's, I, it still baffles me. It's like saying, oh, um, what is the best medium of paint to use? You know, and it's like right. that depends on that depends on the skill of the painter. It depends on the what your outcome needs to be, yeah. what you're actually painting, the canvas, you know, and so on. There's no such thing. And it's, uh, ah, sorry, it's just like yeah. that question always really gets me. It really annoys me. But um, oh, can, can I just point out, I didn't ask that question. Oh, I know. I know you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't do that. Um, I think that's one of those questions we just do not ever bring up in martial circles because the there have been uh, less there has there have been countless debates, arguments, and so on over this, which I find useless because it's okay. Sure. I, and, uh, in terms of talking about. Uh, the applications techniques what is useful within certain circumstances that is very different like you just said I'm not going to start jumping into Santishi or a different form type when I am being mugged in front of a pub you know but at the same time I could then say to myself from the arts that I have done what would be the most beneficial form of Mm. defense that I could take from them so there's that part of it which is still um, you allowing for some form of analysis. But in, t- in terms of saying what's the best art out there, oh, it's just a one yeah. I've done. <laughs> Actually, I, I have a rule of thumb when it comes to like martial arts versus self-defense. Yeah. If you get changed into different clothes before you train, it's probably not self-defense. Yes, it's not because, street application. Right, you know, if you, know, if you, if you go to work in I don't know, a business suit and business shoes and you've got 
you know, your briefcase or something with you. Yeah. And then you go to the pub afterwards with your mates or whatever, and then you're coming out of the pub and stuff happens. You need exactly. to be able to deal with it in in those clothes, in those yep. shoes, in that situation. This is this is where some of the some of the classes I did attend, especially in my younger years, um, I did quite enjoy because it was a case of being told, especially with ninjutsu, for example, being told you should be able to apply these techniques um, in your day to day life. That is one of the um, one of the important uh, angles that we look at. Um, so whether you're in your day to day clothes, you don't need to be in a gear or uniform to be doing this and so on. You know, we're not going to be um, obviously there's a difference if you're in a wedding dress and heels or something, but still be able to, <laughs> if you, you know, if you need to be able to, to defend yourself. But again, application is where it all comes down to, I think. Sure. Um, okay. Let's take a slight left turn. And because okay. uh, I actually skipped over a question because we started getting into swords and stuff and I wasn't going to like stop that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but I do need to know about the astrophysics and the aerospace uh-huh. engineering and all of that. So, Okay. What exactly does an astrophysicist and an aerospace engineer actually do? Okay. And do you think you'll ever get into space? Okay, so um, not all too different from what we were talking about in terms of martial arts and martial combat. <laughs> Astrophysics and aerospace engineering are, think of them as two sides of the one coin. One is the science and methodology. The other is the tangible application so with astrophysics it's basically there to push the limits of our very very limited human knowledge in order to understand the universe and in turn existence in itself you know it is the the deep research and analysis of what we are able to learn about the universe the cosmos and so on but keeping in mind that our own knowledge i mean we are just a blip in history right now a tiny blip when you look at the our timeline of humanity compared to how long the universe has been around for, you know, this ten, like, into the tens of billions of years. Um, our knowledge is incredibly limited, but that's what keeps it really exciting. And that's why I love the sciences, because one of the things I find is the more you learn, the more you realize, the less you know. Yeah, of course. But that is one of the most exciting parts of it, because it feels like the learning will never end. So the, the astrophysics is the scientific uh, research Whereas with the aerospace engineering, that offers you a way to tangibly explore the universe and the cosmos. Um, and it uses the science to then help us to bring understanding also into the state of the Earth itself as well. So this is where we talk about something like Earth observation. Um, so Earth observation is techni- is uses something called remote sensing, so satellites to be able to analyse the state of the earth. So whether it's to do with um, ice sheets, whether it's to do with the state of the soil and the ground, whether it's to do with the atmospheres and so on as well, it helps us to then quantify our kind of climate change parameters to understand the state of the earth currently and where it's going as well. So that's just earth observation in itself. But if we were to look outward, there's like deep space exploration, whether it's to do with other um, kind of stellar entities or if it's to do with um, planetary exploration as well, it brings both of them together. So very much two sides of the one coin. Okay, so an aerospace engineer kind of builds satellites and spaceships and things, and an astrophysicist understands how to get them from one place to the other because they know how these things interact. Yeah, so okay. think think of it this way. If we were on an adventure, the astrophysicist would be the one with the map and the compass, and the 
airspace engineer would be the one with the with the machete cutting down all the all the um, rubbish not the rubbish but all, all of the like plants around you to try and actually get us to where we need to go okay so what what do you do in that field exactly so um i have been able to do both upstream and downstream so when we talk about upstream it means uh basically building the satellites, working on the subsystems, whether it's working on um, propulsion subsystems or structural, thermal. Um, so I, hang on, hang on, hang on. You actually, like, build rockets? Yeah, so um, I have been part of... The, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, I have an actual rocket scientist on the show. Um, it's not rocket science. Yes, it is rocket science. Please, carry uh, on. Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> yes, I, I get that one a lot. Um, I bet but, you do. Yeah, so basically, uh, working on upstream means working on creating the mission. So one of the kind of main... My main 14, in a sense, is what I'd call what we call mission analysis. It's it's using all the the programming and calculations and astrodynamics to understand how we're going to get the satellite from ground into where it needs to be around the Earth, into orbit. But that requires a lot of very, 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 very fine tuning because you need to keep in, take into consideration everything from the mass of your satellite, the velocity it can reach um, to where you're launching from and, you know, like the shape of it and everything everything comes into it so mission analysis is kind of like the heart of it in a sense and then you get all these subsystems around it but um so i've worked on that and i've worked on uh, a lot of uh, missions from different space agencies so more closely with ESA, which is a European space agency, support your local agencies, people. Um, but also, uh, you know, NASA, and we've now got the UK space agency as well. Um, you know, worked alongside other kind of international ones too. So it's it's quite exciting. Um, currently, uh, my my current job, I work on what we call the downstream, which is utilizing the data we receive from the satellites in order to understand more about the Earth and to then be able to push for action. So I'm currently with an organization called Spire Global, and through that, we have one of the largest constellations of low Earth orbit nanosatellites in the world. We have, uh, we've had our 150, 150th launch just a couple of weeks ago on a SpaceX rocket, and wow. um, with over 120 in, in orbit right now, or in operation, we are able to get information about like all those parameters I just told you about, and also to do with maritime, aviation, weather, not just about what I the department I'm in called Earth Intelligence. So um, so right now I work in Earth Intelligence. And uh, we are able to then use those parameters to then work with research institutions, agencies, um, whether it's commercial companies and so on, to um, kind of give back in a way. So, you know, we are working on understanding more about sea ice, the melting of it. That in itself is indicative of climate change. And that when we see the melting of the sea ice, it affects it actually has an effect on us globally because it's not just about what's happening in that region. You see the rise of sea levels. You see the changes to the kind of biomes and marine life within that area as well, the migration of, of, um, of fishes. And that in itself checks off this entire kind of ripple effect, butterfly effect that reaches us and beyond. So whether it's sea ice, whether it's looking at the Earth's surface, whether it's looking at the many atmospheres, we also deal with space weather, which is to do with the effects of the sun on the Earth, um, I mean, you can have a situation where you have a, something called a coronal mass ejection or a solar flare. It gives off such high energetic particles that it has the ability to wipe electronics on board satellites, uh, also uh -huh. on onboard planes and even terrestrially on ground as well. So um, having this kind of information, utilising it, allowing for prediction and forecast as well, which is a lot of what is done in the space sector in terms of data. 
Oh my god. Okay, where to start with that? All right. Sorry, uh, I just I ran no, 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 along a lot. This, this, this is great. I, I should probably mention that. Um, okay, most kids growing up, a lot of them either want to be an astronaut or a sword fighter. Okay, and you are apparently both. So my first question, <laughs> well, I'm not quite an astronaut yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. My first question. Okay, so presumably you were good at maths and science and stuff at school, and you went to university and studied. Physics? Astrophysics? Um, so there are a lot of paths you can take to get into the space sector. Um, so it's not just a traditional university path, though that is what I did. So um, I, well, actually, the funny thing is, ever since I was this tiny, chubby little kid running around, you know, I used to go around telling everybody I wanted to become a neurosurgeon. I wanted to go into neurology because okay. growing up, that's what I always thought I wanted to do. I got all the way to like my fifth year of high school, which is like your final years of your of high school in Scotland. And it wasn't until I met my physics teacher, who was an absolute nut job, who also a who was also a ninjutsu practitioner, okay. um, who showed me how much I enjoyed physics. So... I applied to both physics uh, and astronomy, and then I also applied to medicine. Um, was very lucky to have um, been given a place for both, and it was a case of what do I go with, what my head's always told me or what my instinct now tells me I enjoy. Okay. I always act on my instinct. Yeah, uh, usually, uh, it usually keeps me safe to an extent. I do get into a lot of stupid situations, but my instinct is what saves me, so I went for that and I never looked back. Um, and so I went to university, studied physics and astronomy, specializing in then physics with astrophysics. And then I, that was my honors degree. And then I went on to do my postgrad in aerospace engineering, space mission analysis and design, which includes modules like astrodynamics, spacecraft systems and so on. Um, from there, I then went into industry. And when I was with uni, I was already working on some like ESA projects uh, anyway to do with moon landers. But then I then went into industry and started working on um within like different sectors of space there as well. So that was the route I took. But nowadays, I, I remember somebody in my operations team was actually from a law background, but it's because okay. he had really good problem solving skills that he got in. You know, there's we have transferable skills. So mm -hmm. somebody could go to college and then from college, maybe do two years after in uni or something. Somebody else could do an apprenticeship somewhere. And there's so many different paths into the, into the STEM sectors. So um, yeah, there's... Okay. It, it's exciting. <clears throat> um, and you want to actually go into space, correct? I mean, I'd like to. So one thing, one thing a lot of people don't notice about me uh, when I talk to them because I give direct eye contact is that I'm visually impaired. I'm partially blind. Oh. Um, so that brings a whole other spanner into the swords, swordswomanship, right? <laughs> or swordswomanship. Right, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, but... Yes, so it was actually the martial arts that really helped me find my feet. That was another reason it meant a lot to me. So, um, whereas in my day-to-day -day life, I am an absolute klutz. I will trip over my own foot, right? But when I am training, uh, I am more aware of my surroundings than ever, and I try to apply that to my day-to-day -day life. This is why I can get around without bumping into things too much. Um <laughs> So, but yeah, so that is where there was a little bit of, um, you know, this is where I thought, you know, maybe I wouldn't ever be able to apply to become an astronaut. Um, but what we're finding now is with org with agencies like ESA, who have recently come out with their astronaut, uh, astronaut call, call for astronauts, basically, mm -hmm. uh, they are beginning to take in those with um, different types of impairments. 
and uh, going forward with the advancement of technology, there will hopefully be more and more um, assistance being made right. available. But uh, I am currently a second round candidate uh, for by by Space for Humanity as a oh, citizen, wow. yeah, citizen astronaut. Uh, program with them so fingers crossed on so, that one. So okay. I, I got through I, the first round so I think it was whittled down from something like tens of thousands of people or something I have no clue why they got me in but uh, here's well, I, hoping I think, <laughs> I think being an astrophysicist and an aerospace engineer probably helped a little bit yeah I mean <laughs> it, it hopes well it helps but um, I think a lot of it is also to do with curiosity so one of the big so I am also a STEM ambassador so I give a lot of um, kind of talks to universities schools colleges companies charities mm -hmm. about the STEM sector so that's science technology engineering mathematics and one of the one of the words I usually like to bring up is about curiosity because in a nutshell that's what a scientist does has right. or what they are they're curious they're always curious they always want to learn more and I guess that's what these programs look for it's not necessarily always about what you're you have to have a space background. A lot of those who got in may not have had that. They could have been from, you know, like a law background or they could have been from, you know, a dentist or something. But um, it's more about having that that passion for learning. And that's something that's always meant a lot to me in my life. Okay. So, I mean, I, I sort of have this, this vision in my head of astronauts being, you know, super fit um, ex-test pilots, basically, because all the really famous astronauts from yeah, the 60s were super fit test pilots. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm currently learning to fly planes myself, and it's oh, absolutely nice. awesome. Um, but uh, so I'm guessing that a modern astronaut isn't necessarily a pilot. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you don't have to have... the. It is a... It is a very strong advantage to have taken okay. some forms of flight lessons beforehand or having, you know, your PPL. But um, okay. what tends to happen is once you do go through, as long as you've shown comp that you're um, competent within the different uh, tests that they do put out, you were given the training then. So, okay. of course, having some form of... Um, some form of flight training. It's because it basically means things like hand-eye coordination. It means having um, the processing speed to understand what to do in you know high-pressure situations yeah. and so on. If you can then display that in other ways, it means you have the ability to hopefully pick up that type of training going forward, which they could offer. So it depends on the agency. It depends on who you know where this is coming from, what their resources are, and so on. So. Okay, so so there's actually real hope that you might get into space. I mean, fingers crossed. If I, I would really love to do so because one of the one of the uh, kind of reasons for the Space for Humanity Citizen Astronaut Program is to get people up there who are who are day to day people who aren't people who are billionaires who aren't people who have you know had a route because they knew somebody in the you know in that industry, mm. um, and they can be they can then. Um, experience what we call the overview effect okay. which is when you are sitting well floating uh outside of um the kind of higher atmospheres looking down at the earth you can be on the iss you can be in a, a different type of module um looking down the feeling of connection you have with the earth this overview of the earth that you then experience it's been shown that um, you know, amongst many of the astronauts that have gone up, they experience this very emotional bond mm. that takes place, which makes them want to then do more on the Earth and then, you know, uh, allow for 
um, more opportunities for others and then do more charitable work and so on as well. So yes, there is a very strong science engineering part of it, but there's also almost like the philosophical side as well. And that's what this organization pushes for. So you're able to do that. And then upon experiencing this, share that insight with, you know, um, people from around the world, Um, you look to then help address the um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, working Mm -hmm. towards those as well and working with different organizations to, um, you know, make the world a better place if possible. So so your your background as a STEM ambassador would actually help with that because you already have a practice of going out and telling people about this cool stuff. Well, I hope so, I guess. Um, Mm. I guess a a big part of it is the mentoring and teaching part. So, Mm. um, yes, when you first approach... uh, whether it's different organizations or you're talking to people and the topic comes up of, you know, STEM ambassadorship and teaching and all this, they're like, great. And then they hear about like your time throughout majority of your life working, being, not working, sorry, being within the martial arts and especially then specializing in weapon arts. Um, and then when you, when you <laughs> tell them about the beauty and the artistic nature of it, they're right on board. They love it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. You're like spreading the word, word for that without meaning to. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I'll be having conversations with people, like maybe in the in the place where I go flying, and you know, because we're just talking planes, or whatever. And then for some reason, somebody says something about swords, and then suddenly the whole conversation just switches. It's yes, like, do you swords! get? Oh my do, god! Do you get that when like you're, you can be doing anything, but even if you're talking to somebody else, you hear somebody else that the word sword, you won't hear any of their conversation, the word sword or your name, you'll hear that and you'll suddenly be like, where? You'll turn around <laughs> looking for the conversation just so you can jump in. Yeah. Um, it's exciting. Uh, absolutely. And um, it's interesting to see how this sort of like holistic vision of like you have the, the swords and the martial arts and the science and the engineering and the STEM stuff. And it's, it's not these separate boxes that you're put in it is one giant box with many parts that you move between yeah, yeah. it's you know when you have these conversations and a lot of people assume that you can only do one thing or the other or maybe at maximum one or two yeah. but as we were talking about about before transferable skills this is something you can apply throughout all of your life it's not just to do with work or your career mm-hmm. um but it's not just about your like your professional skills. This is to do with you as a person. So as somebody, for example, I am a woman of faith. Um, I am a Muslim woman, which means that spirituality is quite important to me. Now, when I practice the martial arts, uh, that's, um, that's for me, that is a form of self-expression. It is a form of spirituality for me as well. Um, I'm, I mean, if this is something someone else enjoys, then that's completely fine. I'm not putting it down. But for me, I don't really get a buzz out of watching or being part of events where there's two people in a ring being the yeah. snot out of one another when people cheer on. Again, if that's, if that's the kind of sports people like, then, you know, please feel free. I'm sure that it's really, really enjoyable, but that's not me. For me, it is about my own form of self-expression. That's one of the reasons why having been in um, my my main art, which is Haidongumdo for so long. It's actually been over 15 years now. My God, okay. I feel old. <laughs> so I think the blog post you may have read was an older one. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, yeah, so I was very blessed to have met a teacher who not only took me on as almost like an apprentice or his, his like main 
protégé in a sense. But keeping in mind that I tick a lot of taboo boxes for people. You know, you're a woman, woman of colour, woman of faith, a woman with an impairment, a visual impairment and so on. For a lot of people, especially when you go back a decade or two, you know, like this was, cons- mm. these are kind of taboo um, sure. boxes that they would see. But he saw past a lot of this with, while still being able to, no, we as human beings we respect one another, and we trained in several arts together. With um, this being our main art, because that was the one that he taught. He was the senior presence of it for the UK at the time and within Scotland. So having that connection, and we we chose to disassociate ourselves from tournaments and uh, competitions. Again, nothing wrong with those. Like that's mm-hmm. like each to their own. It's just for us, we got to a point where we just wanted to concentrate on our own training. Simple is that yeah. you know after you've taught for so long and you've done you've been there done that basically it gets to a point where you don't care what others say you don't care what mm-hmm. rules one association is making over the other the federation for example <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. where they're all i mean let's all get real right now um for people to believe that every association martial arts association association in the world or federation have no forms of corruption, have no forms of conflict in them is is very unrealistic. I don't because, think anybody believes that. Yeah. Oh, I've I've actually had conversations where people are so adamant that their association is perfect, and I'm like, huh. I, I, I've personally not been. I've been part of several. I've left several, and yeah. you know, I, I, they've got their strong points. They have you know such a great. Some of them have such great methodologies and teachings, but when when with a lot of organisations you can pay four or five hundred pound and suddenly you're given a first down after not having trained at all, you know, or barely being trained. This is very, I'm not going to hide this. And I think this is something that people should be more aware of. Um, That is something that happens quite a lot. And I've noticed it more so because of this is where my expertise is within Far Eastern arts. Um, It does happen quite a lot. Whereas you get those who do actually honor the training, but with a lot of organizations, it's not unknown for there to be, you know, that level of, or that type of uh, corruption, that's what I'm going to call it. So, (laughs) and that that is something that really pushed me away from, again, like, I'm not saying all of them are like this, but personally, it made me just want to concentrate on my own training. Yeah, I I do the same. I I have no formal involvement with any organizations at all. I mean, some organizations are necessary because they do things like they, they create, a, a credible reason for insurance companies to issue insurance, right? Yes. Right. So they have they have their function, and also it can be useful to have an association where you know somebody knows where to go to find people doing this kind of thing. Yes, definitely. Right? Or the other one is for for documenting as right. well. That's exactly. another aspect. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and tournaments for you know for most. Um, people doing swordsmanship at some point in their training, yep, they will go. getting some tournament experience is really, really useful. And the tournaments Definitely. themselves provide not just that training opportunity, but they also provide a a market that creates a sort of the economic situation in which it makes it worth people's while to produce training equipment that everyone yep. else can also use. It also right, spreads awareness of those arts in themselves exactly. and for others yeah. to then learn about them. So I completely they're, agree. Yeah, they're, they're in, kind of in terms but of I, the... the Oh, sorry. I just don't have I just don't have anything to I mean I'm quite happy that all that's happening 
Oh, yeah. I want absolutely nothing to do with my stuff. I just, yeah. I produce my own stuff. I write my yeah. books and I write, I do my, make my courses, yeah. I do my research, but, I do my training, I do my teaching. I have yeah. no interest in any organization. But that's, that's where that personal journey is. And that's what yeah, I'm exactly. on that same boat, basically, where, again, please, anyone listening, don't think this is me attacking associations or no. anything of that kind. <laughs> no, because, criticism. you know, I, I have seen several that are fantastic. And just the job they do in raising awareness and getting people on board, increasing levels of diversity in them, is fin- it's fantastic. Um, but it's just once you've been there done that for quite a long time and you know like you said you've done a lot of the the tournaments and competitions you just decide to go on your own journey in a sense Um, and that is one of the that is probably when I noticed my own form of personal growth accelerate when I concentrated just on the art for the sake of the art itself right Um, and I mean again this is personal anyway and uh it was great to then be able to, you know, apply it to my own form of self-expression. So again, this is probably a very spiritual <laughs> angle to be taking, but that's just what that's I okay. enjoy about it. So yeah, yeah, and and honestly, it's been my angle since forever. Um, yeah, you know, there is no practical rationale for swinging swords around in the twenty-first century. There really isn't. Right, um, we do it for other reasons. Yeah, um, I mean, it's that way where, um, like I said, ever because of my visual impairment I've had this ever since I can remember but being in the martial arts allowed you know when one of your senses goes down your other ones heighten and I always say you almost gain almost I don't want to say another sense but it's a keen sense of awareness you need to be aware of what's around you being in the martial arts especially arts which focused on awareness in that sense helped me find my feet so um, I count a lot on my hearing that's how I get around day to day um, but at the same time, being in a situation where, let's just say I am doing some form of sparring in a class or, um, you know, training or whatever, things like knowing how to time myself according to the feeling of motion in front of me, that might sound really mm. strange, but for someone who's visually impaired, we we find ourselves needing all of these little um all of these little quips to help us make fast decisions. Um, it helps you in your day-to-day life, basically. Sure. So things like crossing a road, um, the amount of times, okay, the amount of times I've uh, I've almost been knocked over because I have uh, I have a very quiet but very powerful sneeze where I, <laughs> I squeak and I go flying. I, 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 look, I look like somebody's tugged me from the stomach really hard and the time, number of times my friends have had to grab me by the arm because I'm almost sneezed into traffic. But that's a different story. But the amount of times where I'm trying to cross a road and I cannot see left or right very well especially if it's like lower lighting situations or if there's a car coming around the corner I'm about to cross but I very much have to consciously listen hard or feel you know especially just as you're standing sometimes you can feel that vibration below you telling you there's a car coming around the corner something as simple as that you know is what we count on so and the martial arts really helped me to hone in on that to hone those skills yeah and there are examples in uh, European martial history of swordsmen who were blind and very good yeah. and like one uh, in Hutton I think um, he was simply asked the length of his opponent's sword in inches yeah. and they would begin with the blades crossed and then he could just handle anybody yes that it's like, was that's really cool <clears throat> so whenever I was doing partner sparring uh, or chukum I'd be call it 
the moment you you are able to touch swords, that's when I'm like, okay, I know where I'm yeah. where I am and I know what to do. I, I know where my footing is going. That really helps. Yeah. But there's times when you begin and you don't do that, depending on what type of uh, sure. what type of form you're about to do or whatever. Um, in that case, it's just about listening. And when you already know they're using a similar sword to you, you could obviously each sword is they'll have it customized to their own length, to their own height and so on. Um, but it'll be similar enough that you know that it's within this type of length. Yeah. So you can predict, you know, where yeah. you need to be and so on. And also, um, most trickery in swordsmanship is done through showing somebody something that's not true. Yes. Right? And if they can't see it, you can't lie to them. So... Um, one of the so within ninjutsu I always remember there was one of my earlier arts but within ninjutsu we used to talk about the different elements you train under and one was basically translates to void meaning Mm -hmm. the element of surprise and this is where it could be anything in terms of you were standing and somebody comes towards you anything from stomping your foot and yelling all of a sudden to to catch them off guard and Mm -hmm. really push them back to how you would um, look like you're about to take a longer lunge but you actually take a shorter one and then jump forward again however you whatever you decide to do that's quite that those are the kind of techniques that we then put to use especially when you have no you have a disadvantage in some way or another you have to use that to your advantage Um, so yeah I, I I see where you know these um these people, you know, these martial artists you were speaking about, the swordsmen who would want to touch tips of the swords, you know, mm. why it's obvious. Yeah, now, the video that got sent to me was very artistically produced. And actually, I I got to you through the photographer who shot the video. Oh, okay, yes. Oh, gosh, that one. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, the lightsabers. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. It was great. Um, actually, that's an interesting thing because... You know, I'm some random bloke on the internet and, you know, women on the internet have a really hard time with random blokes randomly contacting them, telling them all sorts of shit. So actually it was kind of handy that there was this friendly photographer who would, yeah. who sort of passed by message on the sort of... Yeah. Um, so, but there's clearly, you're, you're fundamentally an artist in that, you know, you're producing these videos and you write and you do sort of visual arts and... It's, it seems to me that there's, it's all kind of connected to the martial arts and connected to the aerospace engineering and what have you. It's, it's this one sort of artistic vision. But what is your sort of, what is your medium of choice? So to say that I have a medium of choice would be a lie because okay. for me it very much depends on how I am feeling and how I wish to express myself. Okay. So... Um, as you were saying, you, you know, you mentioned all the different things, but they're all interconnected in some way. So um, for me, as I said before, with the martial arts, I find it a form of self-expression when I am able to just um, train and be in my own zone, in a sense, yet be more aware of my surroundings than ever. It's almost, when you look at, um, for example, training in Haidongumdo, especially um, what we would call Sangdong, Sang. Uh, Sangumdo, which is to do with the twin swords, it can feel very dance-like almost. Mm. There's a very kind of um, uh, you. I don't want to say like hypnotic, but when you're training, you get into a trance-like state almost. Again, the whole spiritual sure. side of it more so, um, and that kind of then translates into 
a form of self-expression in itself. Now, um, I'm also a short story writer and poet, and I have been published. Um, but uh, again, that's something I've also been doing since I was a kid, expressing myself through my written work. Um, so I do have a, not all of it, but some of it on my blog page, which I haven't updated for a long, long time because life gets in the way, especially work. Um, but again, it very much depends on how I'm feeling at that time, where if I feel I need to get something down on paper, I will do so. If I feel like I need to paint it on a canvas, I will do so. For me, it's never about, is anyone going to see this? Is it good enough? Um, will it make sense to anyone else? Because that is my form of self-expression. That is my expression taking place. Whether it makes sense to others or not isn't the point. It's for me to be able to put it onto some form of tangible medium to get it out of my system in a sense. And of course, I, I really love the fact that others will be able to see it, read it, and also appreciate it, especially if they find it relatable. Um, but it's very much to do with how I'm feeling. I, I couldn't limit myself to one. And I know that, again, that sounds so cliche, but I understand why some people say that because I don't want to limit myself. I don't want to bind, bind myself into this box where I only allow myself to do one thing. Yeah, I, I, it, it comes out, you know, sometimes people say, I say, Guy, you're a swordsman. Well, yeah, kind of. What do you mean, kind of? Well, yeah, I also am a writer and I produce courses and I do, I'm a woodworker and I'm, I've taken up restoring antique watches. And yeah. probably my, my most important art form at the moment is parenting. That is right. like oh, that's like that's a forty-hour-a-day job. That is uh, right. that is an yeah. art form in itself. <laughs> it is absolutely an art form, and it and it is is it's. I tell you something. I don't know how I would have been able to, you know, come this far with the parenting thing without the sourcemanship training. Exactly not, because it's not, your outlet for your, right, no, for your no, no 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 not not just that, but um, like kids. Okay. When kids come into the world, they are who they are, and yep. that is very often not who you expect. Yeah. Right? So any expectations you have as to how your baby is going to turn out are always going to be confounded in some way, right? Mm. And so and, you know, in a sword fight, the thing that gets you really messed up is your expectations. Like You expect a person to do this, and they do yes. that. Right? So you have to have no expectations. You just see what's in front of you, yes. and you have to have some kind of clear vision of the outcome you want right you have to be very present in that moment exactly. which I, f I feel a lot it can be very difficult it's harder to do than people realize right. to be present and it's very hard to do on almost no sleep when your child <laughs> yeah. has just decided not to eat for a day yeah. and is screaming at you because they're hungry but refusing to eat yeah right like for instance or and, and that's that's one of the minor early challenges of parenting yeah. right but i mean to me the parenting is not different to the swords, it's not different to the woodwork, it's not different to all the other things that I do. They're yes. just, it's, I don't know, it's, it's one life. It's like... Yeah. So think of it this way. Again, there are similarities or we can draw parallels where just like with the sword arts, you cannot have expectation of what your opponent's going to do. So instead, all you can do is realise what you're doing is giving up a sense of wanting to control the situation. Of course, like having some form of, you want to be in control of yourself, but you cannot be in control of somebody else. Right. So in doing so, what you have to do is be in control of yourself, but also be present and aware of what is happening. And that's the same with children. You can't, you can't necessarily control what they do and the tantrums they throw. Certainly and the fact not. they're not sleeping and so on. You know, you're, you're, 
two in the morning, they're still waking you up, um, throwing things around. But what what you all you really can do is take control of the situation. And when they see you, you project. So if they see you in control and they see that you are calm, that will affect them. Just like in a situation when you are sparring with somebody, um, your opponent will pick up on your demeanor. So if you seem nervous, they will pick up on that and they will almost feel playful then to make you more nervous. Um, If you come across as very grounded and really uh, prepared, they'll also pick up on that. So a lot of what I find is in the different in the different systems I have or arts I have trained in and systems I have trained in a lot of it is about how you present yourself in that first moment in that first stance you are taking and you're facing off in a sense um, how you present yourself is also very important it's what you project yeah and and there are examples in the literature of deliberately projecting um, like fear for example so you pretend to be more afraid than you are to get them overconfident so that they can fall into your trap you feign fear you feign ignorance or oh yeah so um, that's actually come in handy for me before well it's not that I feigned it it's just people would look at me assume that I I had no clue I was a beginner so there's been (laughs) there's there's been times when uh, for example where we had some people walk into the class and um I had a habit, and I know I shouldn't have, but I was let off for it, which I shouldn't have been, but I had a habit of always wearing my white belt, even when I was a much past, like, first, second Mm done. It's just because sometimes if I was, if it wasn't like, if it was just myself, my teacher, and maybe, like, one of the other students, um, we we would sometimes just do that because it makes you remember your foundations and to keep on building upon those and to, and to solidify those you know so sometimes we do that you'd have somebody walk in and you can tell it's probably somebody's never really been in a martial art let alone a sword mm-hmm. art before and it's a case of um my teacher's like okay then you can train against her and they would feel almost offended because <laughs> right. it'd be like you know um not only the fact that she's a white belt but she just seems like she doesn't have a clue and these are sometimes it would be other teachers my teacher would be giggling in the corner um because he (laughs) he was mischievous he was very mischievous in a good way and so he was we were taking basically we've gone somewhere else to teach another class and he was um he was then also giving um instruction to to the teacher of that class so and so they were talking he said okay you can then train against her and Obviously, he didn't want to say that he felt offended, but he came across and said, you know, don't worry, I'll, I won't do anything too quick. You know, things will be okay. I just want you to come at me, you know, with a straight cut or, or a diagonal upward cut or whatever. I completely forget. I can be oblivious in some ways. I forget that I win a white belt. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, if that's what you want. And then, you know, we just hear sijak, you know, as in um, like hajime, meaning start. Yeah. And before he's lifted his sword to get into a stance you're already kind of almost passed and all you yeah. hear is she's not a white belt <laughs> I, was the best. I was just like oh i'm so sorry i forgot yeah i'm not <laughs> but um i think it's just uh again obviously you wouldn't really do that in a more like official no, uh, tournament no, or anything like that this was just more like friendly play within a smaller class at the time but yeah, just not to take people for obviously if you are if you're a teacher and you're against or a master within that art form and you are against somebody who looks like a white belt, you're going to try and be supportive and yeah, sure, you know, help them. But it's just those moments that make you laugh when you look back at it on hindsight. So 
Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah. Okay, so what do I have to do to make you switch to the dark side of the force? Coming to European historical martial arts like, you know, I know, like I know Amazare, Rapier, and yeah. so on. When you say that, I know the others can't see this, but like, I wonder if oh, you can see oh, my dark saber. Oh my god, you have a dark saber. Oh my god. Yep, That's so, a Mandalorian dark saber. Yeah, so funnily enough, this was this is always sitting here, so you can't see my living room, but it's kind of like uh, the Waxworks Museum for Geek Things all over. You can see like structures behind me or figurines they're they're like robots and things yeah so the place is covered but um so the the video that you saw combined my um sword training with lightsabers and the the kind of gist behind that video was i had been sent a dual worthy lightsaber by an australian company part-time hero props to just review for them And I normally wouldn't do that, but they were really nice people. And I thought, yeah, I'll just give it a go. So this was made to be dual worthy. So um, for just sparring purposes. Yeah. And the way they tested it is they dropped it onto concrete from four stories high. Not not so much as a scratch on it or the the light doesn't go out. So it was, you know, it was really well made. And uh, what I was supposed to do was just make a two minute video of me sitting there talking about like the physics of it in a sense, the engineering work behind it and what I thought about it in actual application. Um, so I contacted Lee, the photographer, the videographer and photographer that you reached out to, and we decided, okay, you know what, we can just make this a little bit more so, and maybe put in a little bit of the actual like yeah. sword work on it. What happened? It ended up as two very cold afternoons in the ruins of a castle nearby. It was probably like minus nine or minus ten, and mm-hmm. I'm just wearing my dobok, you know, and it's freezing. Um, so my hands were so cold, I could barely hold my sword. Um, during those parts but it was there was no choreography it was all made up on the spot and it was just supposed to be a bit of fun for us it wasn't supposed to be something that ended up getting shared like on different platforms like hundreds of thousands of times Um, in which case I was kicking myself I was like I'm not even I look like I'm so afar my 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 cuts are not just not at good angles what was I doing (laughs) Um, but then yeah people see that they saw the lightsabers and how you then apply it to the same forms you're doing and um, you know, for Haidong Gimdor, what other arts I was um, practicing, and they were just like, "Oh, it's from the color. I can't tell. Is that a gold? So is that a gold saber, or so a yellow saber, which would be like the Templars, or is it red? Are you a Jedi? You know, sorry, are you a Sith, or would it be a different color for a Jedi?" And uh, so, in a way, nobody really knows the answer. So I could already be part of the dark side, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> no, 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 no. What, 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 what I mean is. Um, you know, is, is there any chance of you taking up um, like, like rapier, your, your rapier, or a longsword, or yeah. anything like that? Um, I, I would definitely love to, um, you know, try again. Uh, I mean, before, like I said, it was primarily classical fencing. I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, I would one thing I would really enjoy is longsword okay. or some form of longsword because I've I've never actually had a go so I would like to try that yes I would like to try this um so I but I know that in terms of where my passion lies it's just within it is primarily within more Korean Japanese sorts Um, Chinese as well I do I do have um like some dolls and jian that I use for like shingi bagua and so on but uh, that is where my passion lies I think just more so of how I'm spiritually bonded in that sense Mm -hmm. but I would I would love to try. Um, I almost, 
Oh, it was so close. I almost had to go at being trained as a Dima Karras. Okay. So this is a whole different story. I know. <laughs> like, go glad on, future, glad future. Um, so long story short, and I'm really bad at this. I'm very sorry, listeners. Um, That's okay. Is that uh, I was approached by a TV channel. And normally I'm really not one for TV and so on. But they said to me that they were looking to make a documentary. So I'm kind of okay with that. If it's to do with research and history, then I'm kind of on board. And the idea was they were looking to... Um, they were looking to uh, emulate what the what it was like to be a gladiator, okay. um, and what would happen was it would mean that they were going to choose a couple of different trainers, primarily from the UK, to be training um, uh, about forty uh, participants within those certain styles. Now there were it meant that we got to, we were going to work very closely with um, I can't forget I, I'm so sorry I forgot Matt's surname um, so very well known within the HEMA community um, Matt Easton probably because I, I, I think okay. so I'm, I'm sorry I'm just so bad with surnames um, but it was uh, it was a case of we'd be studying together and then we would also be looking to train in um, those styles before actually then teaching of course later on but the reason they approached me was because they knew that I have uh, twin sword experience although it mm -hmm. is in a different art form um, they were looking for somebody to teach as a Dima Karras so they had like the somebody else to be like a you know like a hoplomachus and so mm -hmm. on as well um, and what it would mean is that everybody is then taken to somewhere in far eastern Europe and you live each day in the exact same well emulating the same way yeah. that the gladiators would live down to what you're eating down to how you're dressing your yeah. sleeping quarters and so on as well so when they got in touch about this i was just like i did let them know i've never trained in this this uh the sword style before but happy to learn or even apply my own twin sword experience if that helps but you would need to make it clear to those watching that my experience is not in that i wouldn't want to pretend you yeah. know and uh yeah, it was all going great and it was all coming across. They were even getting like the Lorca armor made for the different trainers and so on. It was really exciting. For me, it was just, I finally get to add a Gladius to my collection. I don't have one. <laughs> that was my main part, you know. So I'd have either two Gladii or a Slexica. But I was like, either way, you know, I get some, I get these because I didn't have them in my collection. And unfortunately, last minute, the, the funding for the program dropped because they had to allocate, they could only allocate uh, the funding to one out of the five programs that were chosen and I went to another ah, one and I was just yeah. like who voted for these other ones come on this is like gladiator <laughs> combat <laughs> but, no, the, the, the whole point of the show is is obviously buy Naza Gladius that's the point of it uh, Gladius um, or introduce me to other other types of sword forms um, I have like I said most of my experience is in Far Eastern but also some Middle Eastern as well um, but uh, yes I almost had a Gladius to add to my collection not that I guess if I had to go out and buy a sword right now, oh gosh, that'd be a really hard question. Um, what what sword would you buy next? Yeah, I, I can't answer that. Sorry. <laughs> um, because there's I didn't so actually much ask it, but now that you've said it, I, I'm curious. So, Gladius, perhaps? Um, well, I I guess if I got the Gladius, I would want to at least get some training using it as well. Mm -hmm. um, in which case. It's more about the time allocation to another art at the t at the right now, which is very difficult. Um, but I don't know. I, I there there is um, so there's a, a 
Korean sword called a samgakdo, which is more of a modern term used for, um, <clears throat> it's like a triangular cross-sectional sword. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the sword called a jinga, meaning true sword, is what you would use within haidungumdo for cutting. Um, so it's very similar to the anatomy of a katana, except mm-hmm. a bit lighter, blade is slightly broader and a tiny, tiny bit less curved, but otherwise okay. they are quite similar in application. Um, this one has more of a triangular cross-section though, and uh, used primarily for like straw cutting and so on, but there has there's a really beautiful one I've got my eyes on, so I thought I'd probably go for that next, but now that you mention it, I mean, another thing, another one I don't have in my collection, being Scottish, I don't have a claymore. You do not. I know. I wow, don't. You, you definitely should. Considering I live in Scotland, I'm born and raised here, I don't have a Claymore. I know, that's just, that's terrible, that's, isn't it? That, that's, <laughs> that, that is shocking. It's like blasphemy. <laughs> How could I? <laughs> so, but again, um, for me, it's not just about buying a sword to add to a collection. I would love to have the chance to experience um, some training with it as well, yeah, to yeah, learn more I mean, about it, you know. Owning a sword is... Do you know trivial. anyone in Scotland who teaches gladiator arts? Like, uh, let me think. I, I will, I will give that some thought and get back to you. And listeners, if you know someone, please drop me an email and I will send it on to Naz. So yeah, let me know um, because that would be if there's if any of you know um, somebody who's trained as a Demacaris for you know like that the, the gladiator combat styles. Let me know. That would be really interesting. Just looking up, you know, they were known as kind of the they're a bit rarer, not you know, not really uh, the most common of gladiator warrior types, but, mm-hmm. um, and there's not much on them. There, there's not as much literature out there on the Demacarae as opposed to a lot of the others. So it would be great to learn more about them, actually. I mean, again, it was just okay. because my, my martial arts research is primarily being towards Eastern martial arts. Sure. So it would be good to learn. Okay. Now, my last question. Um, you've done many things um so I, i'm guessing one of the people when you get an idea you tend to act on it but what is the best idea you haven't acted on there's a lot of those i saw really? <laughs> so okay. i i um have a very overactive mind and i go on five different tangents at once this entire discussion would probably show the viewers sorry the, the viewers the, the listeners that i do that where i jump from one topic to another and i apologize um but there's been so many times I've thought of something and I thought that would be fantastic and I've just never got around to it. Other things I have acted on, but it I never had my name to put to it later, which was a bit hurtful. But, you know, this is a, it does happen within the research realms, like uh, actually helping on the detection of the Higgs boson. So I was working on uh, working on um, particle physics experimental um, projects with the LHC for CERN. And having a hand in that, but then because I was just an undergraduate, not having my name then put to it later on. Things like that. But then you have a part of actually being like, you know what, I've detected this strange gap in in like the energy levels. It corresponds to it, but am I doing something wrong? I couldn't have found it, right? (laughs) Not saying I'm the one who found it for anyone listening. (laughs) But um, yes, just things like that. But I guess two things. Um, One of them was there was another funnily enough another channel who reached out to me once asking if I would love so I would like to be on a show show against again like a documentary where I travel the world learning the different martial arts of each country I pass through that is my dream that would be a dream I was like yes please yes thank you you know we reached out about this but again it never 
went through, unfortunately. It was a case uh, of we're thinking to have it as an idea. It's not been um, confirmed yet, but it's an idea. And we just wanted to know if it was to go through, would you be interested? I was like, yes, yes, please. This, is, yes. this would be amazing. So it wasn't my idea, but it's something that I would have loved to have acted on. Okay. Um, how great would that be? Um, the other one I have a friend was, who did it. I have a friend in, in oh. Finland called Arman Alisad who... Mm-hmm. There was, they did a TV show where he went to various different places, yeah. including like, I think there was Korea and China and Russia and... Like Indonesia, Thailand. Yeah, Russia, yeah. Kind of and, and he would train, oh, he would so train in the place for a bit under this particular teacher. And then, and then there'd be a fight at the end where he would get the ever-living shit kicked out of him. <laughs> by, That's expected. By, by, and the but, name of the show yeah. was Kill Armand. Right. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> That's the name of the show. It was it absolutely like brilliant. I have to watch this now. Um, well, this it, was is it, it is in Finnish, it's in Finnish. But, um, but, but there was, yeah, I, so yeah, Kill Armand for Finnish TV. It was absolutely oh, brilliant. That's amazing. Um, well, I guess for this one, it was more of a case of it being more edu- like for the sake of education. So you go, sure. you learn about the art, you talk about it with the, with the schools and teachers there. You then sure. practice it as well. I don't think it's much about as much about you know, there's this fight at the end where you get this not yeah, kicked out yeah, of sure. you. <laughs> Which, though that would have been still fun. Um, the other one is, I always had this idea of building a cosmic wash- washing machine. A I know what? this A cosmic washing machine. I don't, okay. okay. Let, let, me, let, let me, let me, let me explain. Um, before you're like, you're an idiot. Um, so no? obviously, maybe one day something will exist that's similar. It's just, when I was a kid this came into my head like how great would it be where I can build a cosmic washing machine where I can take the earth put it in it washes out all the bad people and takes them back out <laughs> okay I know very childish but you did ask me like an idea I never acted on that was from when I was like eight years old okay. but I, I always loved even growing up I loved the idea of a cosmic washing machine where it washes out all the corruption and um just like evil and all sorts so I mean okay I highly doubt, I highly doubt even with scientific advancements, we'd ever do that because it's not profitable. As you grow older, you realize a lot of it comes from profits uh, by businesses and corporations. Also, also there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's an element of judgment there. Yes, like, like who is, like what is exactly who, bad. What counts as evil? Yeah, I remember thinking of that as a child. I, I remember thinking, how would we then quantify who what is bad and what isn't? But I guess th- then I remember thinking again as a kid, there would be a skill if somebody goes above this level and has done this many crimes and badness, then they get washed in the cosmic yeah, washing yeah. machine. <laughs> and then, no, it doesn't kill them; like it brings them back, but just as good people. So oh, okay. So all oh, right. So it doesn't doesn't like it doesn't. Get rid of it. It, yeah, it, it does obliterate them. them. It cleanses them. Yes. Um, I know that sounds really silly, but you just you asked an idea that was never acted on. That was from when I was okay. like eight years old. So. That's a good idea. But I've always loved the idea of a cosmic washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm in a close enough field, but yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But never say never. No, no. And, and just very difficult to, because, you know, if cause we're talking about a, like a sliding scale or a spectrum of behavior and yeah when, so so somebody who ends up in the washing machine and somebody who doesn't are practically indistinguishable when you look at just the two of them it's only when you look at the whole spectrum that you yeah see, i mean oh, then there's also a line who, here. exactly and then who decides what that scale is you know like is right. it going to be where you can get world well, leaders that do terrible things but they get let go of because they've made it law for it to be allowed yeah. or you know whatever so right yeah, yeah. well actually as a designer 
and probably chief engineer on the project, I guess you would get to decide. Well, I guess that would also depend on who the program managers are and so on. It would usually be allocated to the more business side, but okay. this is where yeah, I would I worry. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess it was just an idea as a kid. But okay. um, but otherwise, of course, there have been other ones, um, whether it's to do with my kind of more science and STEM activities or just to do with personal um, personal moments in life as well, where I had an idea and I thought it would be great to do this. For example, with me being so close to going into medicine, um, something that I thought I'd always wanted to do. And then suddenly I didn't act on it. But what came out of it was something I enjoyed so much. I never looked back. I never once said, oh, I wish I had gone into medicine. Even if the, even if like the job field within the space sector, space sector is so, it can be quite difficult to get into. Um, not as much anymore because of the boom in the space sector. It, it's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more um, happening recently. But yeah, I've never really questioned that because like we said before, you follow your instincts and it leads you somewhere you you need to be. So. Wow, it's a brilliant place to finish. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. That has been lovely getting to meet you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Guy. And um, again, apologies for all my ramblings to everybody. So. <laughs> everybody knows me for this now, so tough luck. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nazia. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And you could also, if the mood took you, click one of those fancy sharing buttons and let all your friends know about this episode. That would be great, actually. Please do that. As always, I would like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesordguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Rainier Van Noort, who is a historical martial arts instructor and translator of a dozen or more historical fencing treatises. Now, if you're already on my mailing list, you will probably be aware of my current obsession with an enormous two-headed spear called the Jägerstock. And when you listen to my conversation with Rainier, you will hear the very moment when I decided to look into it because he translated it, he translated the source into English and he was mentioning it when we were discussing translation and what have you. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. I must try that. And it's been great so far. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.